This is Driven by Data, the podcast. Welcome to Driven by Data, the podcast, brought to you by Orbition Group and hosted by me, Kyle Winterbottom. Orbition Group is delighted to bring this podcast series, which boasts some of the most high-profile data, analytics, and AI thought leaders from across the globe. Each episode details the journey to the top of our industry's most respected leadership figures, while bringing unique insights drawn from first-hand experience on the industry's most trending topics, told in order to share knowledge, experiences, and ideas to inspire, innovate, and give back to the global data and analytics community. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Welcome to Driven by Data, the podcast. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Callum Chase, who is the author of The Economics Singularity. So, Callum, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Carl. Pleasure to be here. No, no, pleasure's, uh, pleasure is all ours. So, where we always start, Callum, is asking our guests to give uh, give themselves, I guess, a brief introduction into their background and journey to date, because I'd never be able to do that justice. So, uh, if you won't mind... Okay, I'll try and keep it brief. Um, I've been a full-time writer and speaker about artificial intelligence and and our future with AI since um, 2013. Before that, I was a journalist with the BBC, and I also later on had a column with the FT. I was a marketer back in the days before the web, so marketing was very different then. And then I spent most of my career doing uh, a, a thing called commercial due diligence, which is part of the transaction process when companies buy other companies or private equity firms invest in companies. Um, and then ended up my sort of business career running a series of uh, smallish growing companies. Um, and then in 2012, uh, set up a little property business, which enabled me to do what I wanted to do, really. And I turned a hobby into my my sort of next career, possibly my final career, I don't know, mm-hmm. um, writing and speaking about AI. Uh, and I'm just launching a side hustle in travel writing as well. Uh, that probably wasn't very brief. No, no, no. Perfect. Perfect. So, I mean, that's fascinating. So obviously spent the time in journalism and obviously uh, now a published author, which kind of makes sense, right? Where does the whole... AI piece come into this? Well, you know, how did you get on that journey and how did that kind of transpire from all of the other things that you've done throughout your career? Science fiction was the genesis of it. Like a lot of people, I read a lot of science fiction as a kid. I still read science fiction. And I always thought that one day we would create machines smarter than ourselves, but I always thought it would be millennia, millennia into the future, way after I was dead. In 1999, I read a book by a man called Ray Kurzweil, who a lot of your listeners may know of. Uh, he's a genius and very controversial <clears throat> and quite eccentric. Um, but he makes he has one brilliant insight, which is that the exponential growth in the power of our computers means that the improvement in the performance of AI will be spectacular. And that has happened. He's been saying um, for a very long time uh, that we would get to what's known as artificial general intelligence, a machine which is as smart as an adult human it's capable in every cognitive sense as metal human. He thinks that will happen in 2029. Not many people agree with him. Seems ridiculously optimistic to me, but who knows? Um, <laughs> but the point is, it could happen in our lifetime. And that, when I sort of came across that insight, I thought, this is amazing. The world needs to think about this. So I started talking about AI. 
Uh, all my friends thought I was completely stark staring mad. Then we had the big bang in AI in 2012 when machine learning, which is a well-established branch of statistics, was successfully applied to AI for the first time. And everything changed. Uh, AI became very, very powerful. Critically, it, it started to make money. It had done some impressive things before. It had beaten the best human chess player, but it had never really made much money. And after the Big Bang in 2012, it started making a lot of money for Facebook and Google, particularly, who essentially stole a lot of the advertising industry from Rupert Murdoch. That made Rupert Murdoch very happy. Personally, I think it's probably a good thing. And we now all use AI daily. Um, Google Maps, Google Search, Translate, facial recognition in Facebook and so on. Fantastic services given to us free by these tech giants who have been rewarded by a great deal of hatred, which strikes me as being ironic. Uh, and yeah, so that, that's my interest in AI, boyhood science fiction, and then the realization that it was growing incredibly powerful. And now, you know, we're sitting here watching it do more and more impressive things every day. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess, are you, from a business perspective, are you working with organizations? I think you do some advisory pieces, right, with some businesses on, on this topic? Yeah, I I work with a couple of, of uh, businesses, um, and I'm very interested in how digital transformation is sweeping across the economy. Uh, it is still the case that the most advanced AI is mostly used in by the tech giants, but it is penetrating the rest of the economy. There's very few business leaders now who don't realize that they have to start deploying AI because uh, if they don't, they'll be out of business in five or 10 years. Yeah. And so there is this process of transformation going on, which is a really big challenge for businesses and for individuals. And so uh, one of the things I talk to business audiences about is how to survive that digital transformation, how to, how to thrive in it. Yeah. Yeah, makes sense. Obviously, I guess, you know, most of the guests that we have on this podcast work, you know, full time, often within the the business arena, within the data analytics and, and AI space. And obviously your background's slightly different and unconventional compared to a lot of the guests we have on. And I guess one of the real interesting pieces for me as I've been speaking to people over, you know, the the, the last few years about this type of stuff is there's this, this obviously appetite to learn more around what it means outside of the business arena. And I think that's obviously what you speak to quite a, a lot. And I think what, you know, your, your books have been about, if I'm not mistaken. So tell us a little bit more about the books that you've written and, you know, why, what was the catalyst, all of that type of stuff. You're, you're absolutely right. I'm not uh, a data scientist. I'm not a programmer. Uh, I'm not trained as a technologist even. I, came at this thinking about what AI would do to us as individuals and as businesses and as societies in the future. And that's still my focus is, is what does it mean for us in the future? Um, the main books I've written about AI are two fiction and two nonfiction. Um, the two fiction books are uh, technological thrillers about what happens when the first artificial general intelligence arrives on the planet and quickly becomes a super intelligence. Uh, they're called Pandora's Brain and Pandora's Oracle. They're, they're a pair. And the two nonfiction books are uh, Surviving AI, which is about the technological singularity. That is when the first AGI arrives and becomes a superintelligence, which I think will be the most important event in human history, certainly up until then, quite possibly forever. Hmm. And 
the other book is The Economic Singularity, which is about something which I expect happened before, might happen at the same time, which is the moment when we have to accept that most people are permanently jobless because there is nothing that we can do for money that a machine can't do cheaper, better and faster than us. And so you get full on, full fat technological unemployment. That I don't think is going to happen for a couple of decades, maybe more, because machines aren't anywhere near being able to replace everything that we do for money. But they will get there, assuming they continue to improve. And if they continue to improve exponentially, they'll almost certainly get there within three decades, because in three decades, given the, the current, exponential, current exponential rate of improvement, the machines we have will be a million times more capable than the machines we have now. It's hard to imagine competing with those in a market. That doesn't mean, say, humans are irrelevant or even the least important uh, organisms on the planet, but we just won't be able to do jobs. And then we'll need a new type of economy. And I spend a lot of time thinking about that. Hmm. I mean, that's fascinating stuff. And obviously, we've had the conversation and debate many times, right? And probably, you know, some more premature than others in terms of is AI taking over the world and is it going to take all of our jobs? And I guess your your thought process is it will. It's just we're, we're a, a, a fair ways away from that, but that that is going to be the outcome. Okay, interesting. So really keen to dig into that as we kind of go through this, but I guess let's strip this back to, to its basics. You know, a million and one variations seemingly around the definition of what artificial intelligence is or does. Um, what does it mean to you? Um, I believe you've had Daniel Hume on this podcast, uh, a <laughs> brilliant man. I think, if he, I think of him as England's e- or Britain's Elon Musk. Uh, <laughs> and he has a really good definition of AI, which I think I, he probably didn't originate it. I don't know, but I think it's terrific. It's only four words. Uh, goal-oriented learning behavior. So an entity is intelligent if it, uh, if, if it pursues a goal and learns as it's pursuing that goal and, and adapts its behavior in order to, to better pursue the goal. So that's that defines intelligence. The artificial bit is easy. It's just anything that's created by humans and not by God or by evolution. Um, so goal-oriented learning behavior. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess where where we're at in the, the world right now from an artificial intelligence capability standpoint, you know, what, what's... What's going on in your eyes? Where do you see, you know, the, the point we're at now, what it can do, what it can't do? Because I still think there's a whole kind of misdemeanor around that, right, in terms of actually what people think it's capable of that it's actually not. Yeah. Well, like I say, it, we're a long way from artificial general intelligence, although there are, there are people who are incredibly well-informed. I won't name names, but I spoke to somebody <laughs> who is you know, arguably one of the people who's most likely to create artificial general intelligence, and he thinks it could happen in 10 years. I, I, th- I find that astonishingly optimistic, but he's better placed to judge than I am. But I think most people think we are quite a bit further off. I believe Demis Asabis, who runs DeepMind, uh, thinks it'll happen around about the turn of this century. That seems more, more uh, plausible to me. But we don't know, because we don't know what it will take to get from here to there. Uh, It will probably take some more technological breakthroughs. Um, One of the leading pioneers, um, Alex Satskaya, I probably pronounced his name wrong, uh, recently said that he thinks that deep learning will take us all the way to artificial general intelligence. I think the consensus view is probably that it won't and that we'll need some more breakthroughs. 
Um, but, you know, we're pretty good at making breakthroughs. Um, where it's at at the moment is it's already very impressive. I mean, if you think back to what it was like driving from one end of the country to another, to the other, it was uh, a tedious and irritating process because you had to have really detailed instructions about lots of the route. Uh, you didn't know how long it would take. You didn't know when you were heading into a traffic jam. Now we have these sort of little elf devices that tell us uh, exactly where to go. They've stopped driving us into ponds, which is nice of them. And they tell us where to turn off the motorway because there's a traffic jam coming up. They tell us exactly when we're going to arrive to the minute. I mean, I recently drove from Edinburgh to Sussex, uh, which is quite a long way. And Google Maps predicted, I think, to within about five minutes when we had arrived. It's astonishing. Uh, machines can recognize faces better than us, which is amazing because face recognition is, is a human superpower. We, we, we have to be able to recognize our mother's faces to survive. Mm -hmm. um, so we're really good at it. And machines are better than us. They're better than us at, at voice recognition. They can write passable letters and art newspaper articles. So they can do all this stuff, which 15 years ago, people would have thought you were mad if you said they'd be able to do it. In fact, they did tell me that. Hmm. Um, but still, there's a lot we can do that they can't do. So they've got a lot of ground to catch up. So I think they're kind of magical, but they're not magical enough yet. And I'm yeah. excited to see what they'll do next and excited for it to hurry up. Yep. Yep. Makes, makes sense. I guess, obviously we're talking about their, what it's capable of now. And I think it's, um, it's always good to actually reflect on how far we've come. Cause I think, you know, we take so much of this for granted, for granted now, right. You know, to be able to type something in Google maps and telling you exactly where you get there or, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, and then the other end of the spectrum, you're talking about this artificial general intelligence, maybe, you know, however many years away. What needs to happen to kind of bridge the gap almost between where we are now and that point? You know, what are the kind of key points in your mind as to, you know, what's going to get us there? Not blowing ourselves up, <laughs> I think, is essentially the only thing we really need to to uh, to do because uh Capitalism and the Enlightenment ideas of scientific process and scientific method will get us there. If it's possible to get there, those forces will get us there. The thing that could stop us is blowing ourselves up because some lunatic presses a big red button that sets off lots of nuclear weapons, or because we destroy our civilization by allowing um, foolish, selfish populists to trash. Uh, the values that we believe in. Um, those are the things that are dangers and they, they're the threat. Assuming those uh, forces don't derail us, then I, I think we're on the right track and we'll get there. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Well, uh, don't, don't get me started on the, <laughs> on the politics column because that might take a, a, a very unhealthy turn, but um, you've, Obviously, you've been very vocal and scrolling through your LinkedIn and seeing all of the content that you put out, you know, kind of stating that this is the best, most interesting and exciting time in human history. What, what's the kind of thought process around those those kind of observations? You said um, earlier that, that we take things for granted and we do. We're a very adaptable species. We... we um, adapt to wonderful situations and appalling situations uh, and just get on with life. 
And we kind of fall into the trap of assuming that life has always been the way it is. Actually, the way life is and has been increasingly for the last couple, two or three hundred years is utterly remarkable. From the first arrival of Homo sapiens on the planet about 200,000 years ago, up until about 1700 or so, mid, mid, mid 18th century, the, uh, a human baby could expect to live for about 35 years. That, that hardly changed at all. And then suddenly, in the, in, during the 18th century, uh, it started to shoot up because we, we figured out how to cure the illnesses of, of youth. Um, the reason why people died so, died so young on average was that they mostly died before they were five. Um, lots and lots of people died before they were five. Now, that's much, much rarer. And so now, all around the world, not just in the, in the developed countries, all around the world, average life expectancy at birth is about 75. And if you uh, make it to sort of 60 or so, you can expect to live to somewhere between 80 and 90. Um, that's a remarkable achievement. And it's happened because of capitalism and the scientific method and the enlightenment. And we should cherish that achievement. It's stupendous. Not just lifespan, but health span um, and every other metric of, of human life, you know, the comfort in which we live, uh, literacy, uh, death in childbirth and, and so on, everything <clears throat> has dramatically improved since the start of the Industrial Revolution. Now, it's often said we're in the fourth Industrial Revolution. I think that's a nonsense phrase and very misleading. If you count the number of times that people have declared the fourth industrial revolution, we're in about the sixth. We're actually in an entirely different revolution, which is the information revolution. And it started somewhere in the late 50s. And we're in the early stages of it. And the overall impact of the information revolution will be much, much bigger than the impact of an industrial revolution, even though that was utterly transformative. Because in the information revolution, we will change ourselves and we will improve our bodies and minds in ways which are frankly unimaginable right now. So for instance, I think it's extremely likely within this century, we will reach the point where humans don't need to die. Death becomes optional. That is such a remarkable breakthrough that most people think it's a nasty idea because they can't quite get their heads around it. Uh, and so, you know, what an amazing time to be born right now when all this stuff is happening. It's, it's quite remarkable. Mm. So uh, it's the best time to be alive because uh, people in the 12th, 13th, 14th centuries would have envied our lifestyles. But the royalty of those times would have envied our lifestyles. It's the most important time to be alive because this enormous change is happening. And there are major downside possibilities. You know, the downside possibilities of superintelligence are <laughs> really quite stark. Um, and it's exciting because of all of that. So, yep. yeah, I, I'm unashamedly claim that this is the most important, the most exciting, and the most interesting time ever in human history. Yep. Talk, talk us through then, I guess, the relationship between everything that you've just kind of um, told us there and, and I guess the the two singularities that you refer to in, in your kind of uh, books. So, as I say, I think the economic singularity will come first, and I expect it in 20 to 30 years when we have to accept the machine's can do everything that we can do for money cheaper and better and faster than us, and we'll need a new type of economy. And I think it's really important that we prepare for this, which is a tough thing to do because we have no data about the future. We don't know what it will be like, don't know for sure that it will happen or when it will happen. 
But I think we'd better have some plans for what it's for, for how it could turn out well, because the time when people when when conventional wisdom switches from where it is now, now the view is no uh, humans will work with the machines pretty much forever. We'll be wage slaves forever, and that's a good thing. It needs to switch to actually no machines are going to do the jobs, and a post jobs future will be great. That's a massive switch in conventional wisdom. And there's lots of other ways it could go. It could go, oops, the machines are going to take all our jobs. We're all going to be desperately poor and starving. And let's have a big panic. And let's invent, let's let's elect somebody worse than Trump. So, you know, we, we, want, to, we really want to avoid that. Uh, so I think we need to be doing lots of planning, scenario planning, experiments uh, to see what a post-jobs world would be like. And I personally think that the economy of abundance is a big part of the solution. That means we have to get the prices of all the goods and services that you need for a very good standard of living down close to zero, because that way the economic transfers, or in short, the taxes that are necessary to pay for the people who don't have jobs to have a good standard of living, they become possible. If prices stay high the way they are at the moment, then it's unaffordable. So there's a lot to do to make sure the economic singularity uh, works out well. And then I suspect another generation later, but who knows, timing is extremely hard to predict, we'll have the technological singularity, we'll create an artificial general intelligence, and that will quickly become a superintelligence. Now, personally, I think that there are two ways that could go. One is disastrous for humanity. I think it's unlikely that it would hate us like the Terminator does when it wakes up and decides to wipe us out. But it might well kind of ignore us because you know we're, we've created it, so it's grateful for that, but we're pretty relevant. And we would look at it and think, this thing is now much more important than us. And we're a bit in the position with respect to it that chimpanzees are to us. There's very little difference between us and chimpanzees. Genetically, we're very similar. But because we have, essentially probably because we have more folds in our prefrontal cortex, um, we are able to communicate in very sophisticated ways. We're able to collaborate. We're able to create, to sort of build pyramids and create guns and so on. And we rule the planet utterly. The future of chimpanzees is completely in our hands. They have no say in it. It's all down to us. And we'll be like that with regard to the superintelligence. Now, it, most likely it will just kind of let us carry on, but we'll be so depressed by realizing our drop in status. I don't think it's going to be good for us. So I think we need to figure out how to merge with it. Again, this strikes most people as utterly bonkers at the moment, and I'm quite comfortable with that. <laughs> um, I think that we're going to have to figure out how to upload our minds into computers and become part of the superintelligence. You know, I know that sounds like crazy science fiction lunatic talk. Like I say, I'm quite comfortable with that. Um, I think that's our best option. And personally, I'd love it. <laughs> I think it'd be great. <laughs> what, what's what's the reality of that situation? How do you see that unfolding? Is, is that, in your eyes, literally like the Terminator movies where there's robots walking around, or is it something different? Robots walking around is, is fairly inefficient. I would think uh, most of us. It, it, so I think that uploading is is probably a really, really hard problem to create a perfect interface between a human mind 
and a computer is, is going to be a really difficult problem. And we're probably going to need superintelligence to, uh, to invent it, to develop it. If, assuming we get there and we do make that happen, I think probably most of us will live in virtual reality for most of the time, if not all the time. But we'll also uh, beam ourselves around the, the, around the galaxy and explore the galaxy and populate it at the speed of light. So we'll beam out um, kind of construction devices to, to the next planet that we're going to. It will assemble a machine which can receive the patterns of minds and those minds will then inhabit the machines on that planet or in orbit around a star or whatever. Um, and and we'll, we'll populate the galaxy at pretty much the speed of light. Mm. So I guess to, to answer the question for all those claims out there that are saying, you know, AI will ultimately replace the human and jobs and all of that type of stuff. Um, there's no doubt in your mind that's going to happen and we're just going to kind of coexist, I guess, to a certain degree is what, what you're saying. Well, when machines take most of the jobs, I, I, I think we should still regard those machines as tools. They will be completely under our control, although they make a lot of decisions for us. Uh, but we will decide uh, what we want to have produced and, and uh, we'll, we'll allocate resources. And I think that we should probably continue to use the market to do that because the market's a very good system for resource allocation. So no, I don't think machines will take over anything other than the drudgery of, of paid work in the economic singularity. Yeah. Uh, the technological singularities is, is a different matter. They could take over everything. Yeah. So I, I think it's, you know, I think there's, there's stupendous upsides to all this. There are serious downsides, but there are amazing upsides. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So talk to us about the relationship with <laughs> ethics. And I'm, um, I guess I'm, I'm smirking, Callum, because obviously you've already talked around some of the potential downsides or what could, <laughs> you know, what could happen, and and part of the the problem as as you see it um, with the powers that that be. Um, but what what does that relationship look like? As what you think will unfold when that unfolds? What's the the ethical, I guess, um, questions that that we're going to be facing? So, you know, ethics. If you regard ethics as ethics as the um, business of thinking about what is uh, the better outcome for humanity and indeed for other conscious uh, entities in, in, in the universe. Um, the really big questions are the economic singularity and the technological singularity and how to make those uh, positive outcomes. When most people talk about AI ethics, they are thinking of newer term issues like privacy and transparency and bias. And these are real issues, obviously. Um, I do take a um, an unpopular opinion that we should share more data rather than less. Uh, it is through using aggregated data that we get the benefits of AI. And, and this is probably most evident and, and it, it reaches its sharpest point in the, in the medical field, where if you imagine a world in which every bit of data that is produced um, by every human or, or every bit of data about every human about their state of health at every second is available to machines. We would learn so much about diseases and how to cure them. We would be able to tackle the underlying problems of aging, uh, which we're not directly tackling enough at the moment. 
we'd accelerate our ability to solve those problems, and we should do that. Now, there are really serious downsides to data being shared inappropriately. So we need all sorts of safeguards. But my bias is to share more data rather than less. And, and that's often an unpopular point of view. But as you can tell, I don't mind being unpopular. <laughs> um, transparency is a technological issue. And I keep reading people saying that AIs are inevitably black boxes and other people saying that, no, actually we can create explainable AIs. And I'm, you know, I'm not in a position to judge. I hope that uh, the future is not a future of black boxes, which are just completely beyond interrogation. One thing's for sure is that you know you, you really can't interrogate the decision process of a human because we don't understand our own decision-making processes. And it's always been proven over and over again that we are riddled with biases. Um, and, and of course, that is where machines get their biases from. They get it from the data which we produce, which is about us. Um, it's easier to challenge a machine about its bias than it is to challenge a human judge or politician or policeman. Um, and so, you know, I, I hope that um, the future of bias is improved by the increased power of AI. Mm -hmm. So, you know, th these are serious issues. I think they're uh, soluble. We're still in the very early days of AI. And as, as I say, it's only 2012 that the Big Bang happened. So it's still very early days. Um, we're also in the very early days of thinking about the big problems, the singularities, yeah. where the big issues are. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I guess to, to bring this back to to business then, and I guess fascinating conversation in terms of just the general state of play as you see it in the future around what artificial intelligence will do from a societal perspective. Um, but bringing it back to, to business, I guess... <laughs> Where where do you see this going? And I guess probably the, a better starting question is more around why why are so many organisations struggling to kind of get artificial intelligence off the ground to help them realise business value within the organisation? Because I think that's the starting point. Right, we're all talking about this, but there's very few organisations that are doing anything, you know, overly sophisticated as far as artificial intelligence goes within the business to to help them move the needle. Yeah. Uh, so I guess two things. Firstly, it's hard. Uh, <laughs> you know, modern AI is sophisticated, complicated, difficult, and expensive. Um, to do the sort of things that Google and Facebook do is phenomenally expensive, and it'd be, it'd be unreasonable to expect most companies to do that. Um, but and, and therefore, the sort of the, the applicable cutting edge isn't to become Google. You don't have to become Google, but you have to be at least as good as your competitor. It's all about being a, a nose ahead, or at least you know level with the competition. Um, so paying a lot of attention to it, and, to it and doing the best you can. So you need to. Um, find some areas in your business where AI could make a big difference and start uh, developing and deploying systems. So you need good data scientists. Um, you need uh, people who can wrangle the algorithms. You probably, mo most people will need outside help. So dive in and get involved and do stuff and, you, and you'll learn in the, in the process. So that's the first thing is that it's hard 
and you have to dive in and get involved. And the other is that it's uh, it's it's quite a mindset change, and that's always hard. Change is never fun. I have a, a model of what organizations and individuals need to do, uh, which I talk about. I talk about companies needing to become able, and able stands for uh, adopting new technologies and particularly automation. I think we need to embrace automation for a bunch of reasons. Uh, the B is for being business model agnostic because your business model quite often needs to change uh, as, as we deploy AI. Uh, lateral thinking is necessary for companies because if you carry on, you know, famous, if you, if you carry on doing the same thing, you'll get the same results and we need to change. And finally, E is for uh, empowering your employees because you need the collective intelligence of your employees working away at the problem. For individuals, we need to get real. And real stands for resilient because we're in a time of accelerating change, which means you're going to get knocked over and you have to get getting up. You, know, you need to be resilient. Uh, you need to be excited. If you're gloomy about the future, you're unlikely to make it as good as it can be. So we all need to be excited. And you can tell I'm excited about it. It's easy for me to be excited about it. I just write about it. I don't have to do it. Um, the A is for agile. We need to, um, you know, to be to be open-minded. While having a plan, you need to be open-minded to, to alternative ways of doing things and to, you know, shocking new news that sends you off in a different direction. And the L finally stands for lifelong learning, which is pretty obvious but hard to do. Um, and one of the things I say to people is, you know, this is all terrifically sensible and obvious advice. How on earth do you do it? Um, and one of the things you need to do is to create more time. Time is the spare resource. Yeah. I think that the, the concept of change and and you're absolutely right, you know, within organizations and I see this day in, day out, see, even on a more basic level with organizations trying to use, utilize their data better and, you know, perform analytics and, and, and things like that. It's, um, it's just different to the way things have been done before at a, a rapid rate. And it's, it's those organizations that embrace and, and kind of push through those very uncomfortable barriers of creating that change that ultimately end up getting the noses in front as far as, a, you know, from a competitive, uh, competitive angle. So I think you're absolutely right. And I guess there's no reason to, to think it won't be the same on an individual level, right? The people that embrace it will probably reap the rewards whatever they they may be yeah there's a saying i can't remember who said this but um in the foreseeable future in the short term anyway uh, because we don't know how long the short term is but in the short term ai won't replace humans in jobs but people who work successfully with ai will replace those who don't yeah yeah that makes um and that makes and that makes perfect sense i i guess as we continue to evolve and go on this journey with artificial intelligence, then I guess we've talked about the, the difficulties of why organizations struggle to start to adopt and implement. And of course, it's hard, it's expensive, there's a whole cultural shift that needs to occur for, for that to happen. But as we get towards the latter stages of that kind of super intelligence, as you've referred it to, what does what will that actually mean for organizations, I guess, you know, have you got any tangible examples of what you think might happen, be happening day to day within organizations, you know, when we get to that point? 
Uh, not when we get to the technological singularity. I mean, at that point, everything changes. Uh, and I really don't know what the world will be like then. I mean, one of the reasons why I'm happy to call these things singularities is that uh, one of the meanings of the word singularity is it's a point beyond which you can't see. Um, it was It's a word which was originally used by John von Neumann in the 1950s to mean a point where uh, technology is moving so fast that we can't understand it anymore. Um, I think the, the, there's an interesting question about what companies will be like and what economies will be like in the run-up to and during and after the economic singularity. And we may be able to peer our way through to, you know, we certainly can peer our way through some scenarios, what, which one will turn out to be the right one, I don't know. I do think that, um, you know, if you, if you posit that there's going to be a world in which most people can't do jobs, then they need income, they need re- access to resources, they need access to the physical and emotional resources uh, that they need and to the resources enable them p- to pursue a fulfilling life. And I don't see a way of doing that other than through tax. You know, there'll be some people with a lot of assets, some people who still have incomes, and there are a whole load of people who have neither of those, and you have to transfer econo- economic resources from the former group to the latter group. I don't see any other way to do it. Uh, and in order to make those taxes palatable to the rich people, you have to make them not too onerous. If you say to rich people, we're going to take everything you've got, then they will resist. And rich people have got a lot of resources. They're pretty good at resisting. Um, the only way to make it less palatable, I think, is to get the prices down of everything, the price of everything we need for a good standard of living down to almost zero. And this is what I call the economy of abundance. And it's one of the central insights of, of my book, The Economic Singularity, and of a, of a group that I'm involved in, and Daniel's also involved in it, called the Economic Singularity Foundation. We are honing, at the moment, a set of propositions which we think will encourage people to think about the economic singularity and suggest some solutions. And once we've done that, we'll post it on our website and invite people to sign up. There isn't enough serious thought going into this at the moment, nothing like, because we're all suffering from a bit from the uh, rabbit in the headlight syndrome where we all think, well, a jobless world is terrifying because it means we're all starving. So let's not believe in that. Let's believe that we'll carry on working with machines forever. And, you know, I could be wrong. Maybe we will. Maybe that's true. Um, I just don't see how it can happen if machines continue to get uh, more, more and more powerful. So we, we're, we're conning ourselves that nothing really is going to change. And that's good. We're really good at that as, as humans. We go through massive change. We can tell there's more massive change coming. But we sort of kid ourselves that actually it's always been like this and it's not really going to change. It's, it's obvious nonsense, but we're, we're good at conning ourselves. And I think we need to get out of that, uh, that, that uh, frozen delusion. Because when it happens, it'll be, I think it'll be a bit like a phase change when... Um, ice turns into water or water turns into steam, the, the pressures will build up and up and up, and then the change will happen fairly quickly. And the realisation that the change is coming will be quite quick. We really need a good plan. We really need an outline of some good scenarios, some good outcomes for people not to panic and cause the derailing that I talked about earlier. So mm. that's, that's, I spend a lot of my time thinking about what 
and, and to be honest, not, not very successfully. Now, I don't have a, a blueprint for what the economic singularity will be like and should be like. I've got some broad ideas. And we need to get a lot more good human minds on the problem. And, and luckily, you know, there's this, whatever it is, seven or eight billion good human minds out there. So we can solve it if we think about it seriously. Yeah, yeah. Well, Callum, look, absolutely fascinating conversation. Um, as I mentioned earlier, before we started, um, one that's quite different to to the normal conversations we're having, I guess, as we're talking about how this stuff, you know, impacts business and the technicalities around that. So, um, but we, we appreciate your time. I guess if people are um, interested to learn more or, you know, collaborate on this type of stuff, what's the best way for them to, to reach out to you? I'm quite active on Twitter. Uh, my handle is uh, at CC Callum, uh, Callum is CA, 1LUM. Uh, I've got a website called www.pandorasbrain.com, pandorasbrain.com. Uh, and I'm increasingly writing articles on a splendid new media platform called the UAM, uh, where I write about AI and healthcare in particular. Right. Interesting. Fair enough. Well, Callum, look, thank you very much for your time. We really appreciate it. And um, yeah, we'll look forward to uh, to seeing your involvement more across the space um, over the coming Thanks, years. Thanks, Carl. Very, very kind of you to let me to let me run off at the mouth for a while. <laughs> it's all right. No problem. We'll speak to you soon. Take care. That's it for this episode of Driven by Data, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back next week speaking with another thought leader from the world of data and analytics. Until then, Please follow Orbition Group on social media if you've not already done so, where you'll be able to subscribe and therefore be made aware of the podcasts as they arrive. And please share, like and leave reviews so that more people from our industry get to hear and benefit from these two. If you've got any questions or you want to suggest ideas for topics or potential guests, then please feel free to reach out to me. Thanks for listening and I'll be back next week.